battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. You are still listening to The Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime. We are now in overtime, and we've got some good stuff. Just a reminder, if you want to call, be part of the show. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Appreciate the conversation going on in the YouTube chat. Folks talking about trying to get us on some uh, Pacifica radio stations. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And appreciate all those folks who've been uh, commenting, liking, sharing, all that stuff really does help. Yep. And uh, Infinite Content also said, my brother just got hired by the Postal Service, so he'll be a new member of the APWU. Very cool. He might not be a member of the APWU, though. He might be. There are four different unions representing Postal Service workers. Uh, There's APWU, American Postal Workers Union. There's the National Postal Mail Handlers Union. There's the National Association of Letter Carriers, which covers letter carriers in the city. And then there's the National Association of Rural Carriers, which covers letter carriers in rural areas. So so I don't know what his job description is, but it would be one of those. But, yeah, definitely make sure he joins the union, whichever one it is, for sure. Yeah, and, you know, from time to time we have people reach out uh, about, you know, what are some good union jobs, and I would say the Postal Service would be a place to look because they Mm. are pretty desperate right now looking for Mm. help uh, in our area, and I imagine probably wherever you're listening from, the Postal Service could use some more uh, staff. That's an opportunity to get into a union gig uh, and get a pension and potentially do some organizing. Absolutely. So um, let's start off with this uh, Trump clip. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Ben Shapiro, you know, his his outlet, the Daily Wire, bent the knee to woke Howard Schultz for the purposes of attacking the union. And uh, Donald Trump now is kind of kind of coming to his aid as well. Let's listen to what he said at a recent rally. The greatest thing happened over the last few days, Starbucks. Remember Schultz, this guy Schultz? The one with the extremely thin legs. I think maybe Dr. Oz would have said he's either really good or very, very, very thin. But he was doing a debate. He was sitting down. I thought his legs, I didn't think he'd be able to stand up. But Schultz, he's the head of it. And he just announced unions are trying to take over Starbucks. But he will not, under any circumstance, allow mail-in voting because it's evil and corrupt. <laughs> the little legs. <laughs> uh, what is that? What is that Hard Times article like? So, something like ter- uh, terrible. The worst person you made made a good point, or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I'd like to see just Trump and Schultz donkey on each other. Just let them like 
put them in a cage match or something, let them uh, say mean things to each other, and maybe they can leave all the rest of us alone. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. But, you know, what he's referring to there is, is you'll remember that Starbucks is trying to halt all elections because they allege that one regional NLRB office, there was one instance of improper communication between the board and the workers, which we've got no reason to believe that's true in the first place. Right. Um, but because of that allegation, they're trying to halt all mail-in ballot elections. It's absolutely crazy. Um, but, you know, I mean, look, this is, this is even though there's, you know, he couldn't help but taking the jabs at him because, you know, uh, Howard Schultz, Starbucks is supposed to be like this woke company, right? Um, but ultimately, what he was doing was siding on, he was siding with the company there. He was siding against the workers, and it's just one more piece of clarity from the Republicans on where they stand. Even if the employer is woke, like Starbucks and Howard Schultz, even if they even if they walk all over Christians' feelings by by making their coffee cups plain red instead of having a crucifix on it, <gasps> oh. <laughs> Republicans are gonna sign with the woke anti-Christian, anti-conservative, anti-free speech, pro-abortion company instead of the workers. And I think, you know, that's uh, that's one more piece of, of clarify. And you can tell, like, the, the crowd really didn't know what way to, you know, they weren't very... They weren't very engaged with that topic of conversation. They weren't sure if they were supposed to be like with the union because it's against Starbucks or if they were supposed to be with Starbucks because they hate workers. You know, like right. they, they, yeah. There was definitely, you know, they, they weren't, weren't sure how they were supposed to react to that. I don't right. think. Yeah. It, it, once he moved beyond insulting his little legs, uh, it got a little bit too contradictory to make sense of. Yeah. Um <laughs> and so this uh uh this next we're one talking that... we're talking a lot of right wing um extremists today. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The next from one the up... local to the national. Yeah, and the next one on our chopping block is uh this guy Mark Walsh. He's like a fifth tier host at uh Ben Shabipo's outlet, the Daily Wire. And he had some comments about the Seattle teacher strike last week um, that we're going to react to. But first, because it's really interesting, I wanted to play for you a, a Seattle teacher's testimony about why she is voting to strike. Adam, let's play that. There's also a, a video from, this is a, I believe, an elementary school teacher in Seattle explaining why she supports going on strike. Let's listen. My name is Heather Barker, and I'm an educator at Sanislo Elementary. Um, And I voted yes for the strike authorization vote. And I did that because I think that we need to have a contract that shows us respect and shows us respect as the experts that we are, that we know our children and we know how to best support them and to give them the world-class education that we know that they deserve that they can get here in Seattle Public Schools. Um, We are fighting to ensure that we have reasonable workloads so that we are available to support our kids. We are fighting to make sure that we have um, uh, workable uh, special education um, model 
to keep all of our kids safe and to keep our staff safe. We are fighting to make sure that we have access to the mental health care that our kids need because we have a lot of needs coming out of this pandemic. Um, and we just need to be there to support our kids. And we need to have contract language that lays that out for us so that we know that we can be delivering the best possible education and learning experience for all of our kids. I'm standing with Seattle Education Association. Yeah, I bet you are. And now I included the beginning and the ending of that so that, just so that you know that Matt Walsh played this whole thing on his show amazingly because it's it's really that was a really really good testimony about why they're going on strike. You know, I mean just to recap some of the things that she said she was voting for, she uh, voting to strike for, she said, you know, better mental health, smaller class sizes, more teachers, respect. Uh, respect more funding for just the general school stuff. I, you know, these are uh, these are really important things for the teachers to have so that they can be able to teach and also for the students to have so that they can learn. I mean, I was I was honestly really shocked that he played that because that totally contradicts everything else that he's going to say. Um I, I mean, at, like these are the things that teachers care about. When they're going through these contract negotiations, when they're trying to get uh, the administration to do right by them and their students. And, you know, no worker goes on strike lightly. Uh, and, you know, I would say even more so when it comes to teachers, because they know uh, how disruptive a strike is just in, in general to the community. Right. People just people depend on schools for child care. Uh, their students depend on schools to eat uh, and to have shelter. Um, so no teacher goes on strike lightly. Uh, the only time uh, or when when strikes happen with teachers, uh, it's a failure upon the district and it's an indictment of the district that they are unable to do right by the educators. And it gets to that point, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's play then how he responds to that teacher's video. In general, I can't stand these people. They, I, I don't think that there's any group in America that hates working as much as public school teachers do. They, they, ab, they just hate it. They get like two months off a year. They get every single holiday off. They get nice breaks for for you know, a nice, win well, I was gonna say Christmas break, we don't call it that, right? It's a win they get a nice winter break, they get a nice, they get a smaller spring, but they still get a spring break. Uh, they get multiple months in the summer. Oh, well, but we have to, we still have to prepare for classes and we gotta come in for teacher days or whatever. Yeah, you still get, you get multiple months in the summer, basically off, no one else gets that. And then COVID rolls around, schools are shut down for over a year in some cases. And it's still, it's still too much work. They're still complaining about the workload. Now they go on strike. So teachers, I was not aware of that, that teachers just got a whole year off. <laughs> Did you know that? Yeah. Where, yeah, where, where was that? Um, I missed that one. Missed it. It's insane. So, so, you know, Adam, having been a public school teacher, having been, 
a representative of, of public school teachers, uh, uh, what is the uh, what is the fact to fiction ratio in in that? Yeah, a lot of bullshit there. <laughs> a lot of it. Um, the idea, first of all, that teachers don't want to work. Okay, uh, teachers are very hardworking and deal with more than most people can imagine uh, if they've never been in those shoes. I can tell you I was exhausted every single evening uh, by the time I was finished. It was a struggle sometimes to make it to the end of the day. Um, physically, emotionally, mentally exhausting. The amount of decisions that you're making constantly. I mean, you're always on. Um, the amount of students that are under your care and supervision I mean, it's hard enough to just keep them safe and keep them, uh, you know, <laughs> where they're supposed to be, much less actually achieve some academic improvements uh, in the process. So, you know, as far as teachers not wanting to work, I mean, there are a lot of people who don't want to work. Uh, those people are management. Those people are right wing <laughs> grifters who, you know, make their money that way, um, you know. We do a radio show, podcast, but we're not making any money off of it. Uh, we spend our own money, really, uh, to keep it afloat. But people like Matt Walsh get to live off, um, you know, his his patrons. Um, and I mean that more in the historical sense of, yeah, wealthy folks who subsidize such garbage to be mm -hmm. on the airwaves. And, uh, you know, the whole argument about teachers have the summer off, all that shit has, you know... People say that all the time. It's always been said. It'll continue to be said. Uh, I can tell you, in the state of Alabama, teachers are compensated for 187 days of work. Uh, so, you know, do they have some time off in June and July? Yes, they do. They're not compensated for that time. Right? And it's very common for educators to get summer jobs, um, whether it's with the school system directly working summer school and um, believe me, there are a lot of teachers, you know, especially single moms who uh, depend upon that summer school assignment to be able to make ends meet. Uh, some work in retail and restaurants and, and other service industry jobs during the summer. Even if they don't work during the summer officially, um, there's a lot of work that goes into it. Um, that's unpaid days of training, unpaid days of preparation, unpaid days of uh, getting your classroom ready. I mean, it, sometimes this is, honestly, they're in there having to mop their mm. own classroom in July, uh, put bookshelves together, um, paint the walls, put posters up, or undo, you know, uh, everything and shift their classroom to the other end of the school. Um, it's not unusual for teachers to have their rooms changed, you know, from year to year, especially if you happen to be on the shit list of whatever principal you have. So, I mean, it's just, it goes on and on. Um, teachers are compensated for the days that they are at school. Well, and, uh, and I mean, beyond that, you know, teachers have to work generally speaking a lot of times they're they're working more than eight hours in a oh, day absolutely like there is how many teachers did you know adam that were able to actually get all of their work done in a planning period if they were given a planning period and they don't have to do anything at home you know thinking about all the grading that you have to right. do after hours and and you know so if you you add up these 10 months of 
I'm working 50 hours week, 50 hour weeks instead of 40 hour weeks, mm-hmm. then you're going right. to end up at <clears throat> 2080 hours of work like, you know, other people. Yeah, it absolutely it, the system relies upon unpaid labor from mm-hmm. the educators. They're compensated for a seven and a half hour day. Um, but, mm. you know, yeah, no teachers are able to get it done from 745 to 315. You know, maybe, you know, maybe the driver's ed teacher, or, you know, a <laughs> PE coach somewhere, somewhere, right. uh, you know, has it made that way, so to speak. But even in those cases, typically they're probably coaching something after school. Right. Um, and believe me, those coaching stipends do not even come close to compensating the hours and time that goes mm-hmm. into it. Um so, yeah, teachers are putting in 50 to 60 hours a week on average. Um, and, you know, that means anywhere from 10 to 25 hours unpaid per week. And then, you know, so so he's got this idea in his head or even I don't you know, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't believe it. Maybe he's just lying because public teachers are enemy number one for right wing weirdos right now. But, you know, he's got this idea in his head about teachers being lazy and and how you know they get so much time off even though they work for it like you said the system the education system in the country were it 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 is held up by our thousands of hours of unpaid labor in every school system yeah i mean because i can tell you if you were to take any school any school the pick the one closest to your neighborhood and all of the educators were to decide from now on, we are only going to do education work from 745 to 315, the hours mm-hmm. upon which we're compensated. And, you know, the all the grading, all the parent communications, all the lesson planning, all of the uh, paperwork, all of that stuff is only done under compensated hours. Schools would grind to a halt. Right. Because there would not be grades in the grade book. Uh, there would not be assignments given out to students. Uh, parents would be out of the loop. Mm. Um, you know, f- federal laws would be broken in terms of special <laughs> education and right. uh, students with disabilities and things like that. The whole system depends on teachers coming in early, teachers mm. staying late after class, teachers bringing work home over the weekends, teachers doing a lot of prep. Uh, during the summer, it depends on that. And that's why work to rule campaigns uh, can be very effective among educators because it doesn't take very long uh, of doing that where you actually only work during your compensated hours. It doesn't right. take long for that to prove a point. Right. Yeah, and, and so he's got this idea, whether he actually believes it or not, that teachers are lazy. And so we understand now that's that's silly. That's a silly thing to believe. But then he goes on to mock the idea that teachers care about their students. Let's play that clip. They get all this time off. It's still not enough. But even putting that aside, I'll tell you what really frustrates me the most when I when I especially want to hear stuff like this from that teacher. First of all, it's it's the pretending that you're doing this for the kids. Oh, this is really about providing the best experience to the kids. This is all about the kids. I want a higher salary for the kids. Are you sharing your salary with the kids? 
Are you, are you giving them a, like a cut? Are they getting a commission? No, at least have the honesty to admit it's for you. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and so he's not even... I mean, there's just so many things there. Like, for one, in that TikTok that he played, she didn't even mention raises, right? And this is not something that's... A, this is... Sticking points are often over other things in these negotiations besides raises. But it's so bizarre for somebody on the right, like a, a libertarian free market type, to pretend that offering competitive wages will not be beneficial for the people receiving the service, which would be, if we want to think about this in a business, in a capitalist type way, then teachers are the, you know, retail service employees and students and parents are the customers. In any other scenario, in literally any other scenario, they are going to recognize that increasing salary is going to make the going to increase competition for that position and will therefore because you are increasing the quality of the candidates you are increasing the interest in people already in that job to keep it you are increasing the motivation that they've got to do good i mean so yes yes people being paid more will help even just on that alone he's absurd he's being silly yeah. That's the whole reason, that's their whole justification for why CEOs should make a thousand times more than their median employees because, oh, the CEO works hard, he deserves it. And if you don't pay the CEO a thousand times more than their median employee, then you won't get as good of a CEO. Why does that logic not apply <laughs> to teachers? To people that are supposed to be molding our young people, the next generation in our society, why would that logic not apply to one of the most important job positions in the country? In the country. If you really believe this capitalist idea that you have to pay a CEO a thousand times more than a median worker to get a good CEO, that's the only way you can get a good CEO. Only way to make it competitive is to offer them an obscene amount of money. Then surely we should be able to agree that paying public school teachers 10% more is going to be better. 20% more, 30% more, doubling their salary is going to be better. You are going to receive a better service for the money. Yeah, and, and a couple of things I wanted to point out there. For, for one thing, the studies are very, very clear that teachers make less than other professional workers who have similar education and credentials. Right. Because you have to have a bachelor's degree. You have to have a teaching certification. Um, most teachers will pursue grad school. They will get a master's or even a Ph.D. Um, there's... Uh, a number of trainings that you have to maintain just to teach certain courses, whether it's AP, um, you know, elementary teachers in Huntsville went through something called letters training. That was hours upon hours upon hours. Uh, there's the national board certification. There's the number of 
uh, CEUs you have to get in professional development every single year just to maintain that teaching license. And, you know, when you compare all of that in what you get in salary for all of that to other, you know, white collar professional college degreed uh, workers, you know, they're doing better in private industry by and large. Right. So then the question is, okay, well, then why do people do it? Well, they do it because they actually like kids. They actually want to make a difference. They want to support young people. You know, maybe they had a teacher that uh, shaped them as a positive role model in their life. Uh, Maybe they have a certain passion for a subject matter they want to share with kids. Uh, Maybe they're just good with kids. Right. And good at building relationships and and helping kids. Uh, I, I can tell you the it's been incredibly rare to meet someone in the education profession who didn't do it because they were, you know, motivated by a, a desire to serve. And, um, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't really make a difference in terms of, um, the pay mm-hmm. folks care about serving kids, the pay where that comes into play is because, yeah, you have to be able to recruit and retain. If right. I can get a better salary, with my credentials somewhere else, then you have to weigh the cost and the benefits. Mm-hmm. And like that's, for example, science and uh, math are two really tough subject areas to hire teachers because if you are an expert in science right. or math, well, you can go to work for the military industrial complex making twice as much and working half as hard. Making, I mean, making twice as much is probably an understatement. You know, I mean, what median salary for teachers in Alabama is what, $50,000 a year? You can easy, easy make 150 right. as a, you know, as an engineer. And I mean, no disrespect to the folks doing that work, but um, I, I just can't imagine the stress level is comparable to you know, 25, 30, 35 youngins running around in your room that you're in charge of for seven and a half hours. Um, Folks who've never done it, you know, and that's why I would love someone like Matt Walsh. Not that I would trust him with my children, but, you know, people like that. I wish they could just go substitute. Right. Just go substitute a couple times. Right. To send you to an elementary school, a middle school, and a high school. Give us three full days of subbing. Uh, and report back on just how how uh, lazy these teachers are, and and you know so he's he's totally off even on his least charitable interpretation of what teachers are fighting for, which is that they just want more money. They just want more money, right? right. And they That's, always want to you know the bosses always want to convert it into mm-hmm. that conversation, and the right wing press does as well. Um, you know I, I've mentioned on this show about you know, fighting Casey Wardinsky here in Huntsville. And um, within my first month on that in that position, I was on the Huntsville Times talking about the issues with teacher turnover and teacher morale. And I, it was right there. I experienced it then where Casey Wardinsky wanted to convert the conversation to a conversation about pay. Mm. And he even told the Huntsville Times, you know, it sounds like we have a pay problem, not a morale problem. Mm. No, you could have paid, you could have given given every single employee at that time a 20% pay raise. And guess what? They still would have been pretty damn right. miserable. Now, some of them probably would have stayed for that, right, right? to pay their bills, because that's, that's ultimately what undergirds everything we do as workers operating in this society is that that's the only way 
we can make a living. The only way we can put food over in our, on our table and a roof over our head is to sell our labor to somebody. Right. So he's, I mean, he's totally off, even on this, the least charitable, even, even in the least charitable interpretation of what teachers are fighting for, it is still actually in part, in large part, for the students. It would actually help the students if teachers were paid more, if they were paid more competitively with their private sector non-education counterparts. Right, because you want the best and brightest teacher for your students, exactly. right? Everyone wants the best for their own kids, and everyone would want the best possible people filling those roles as teachers because you're trusting mm -hmm. your child with, with these adults for, you know, seven and a half, eight hours a day. You're trusting... Mm -hmm your kid's life right and their future right and and so you know that's that's the bizarre thing is why wouldn't you want the best possible people but beyond that he doesn't even mention all the stuff that doesn't explicitly help the teacher but would only explicitly help the kids like increasing funding for mental health staff bringing on more mental health staff that's not going to help the individual teacher. I mean, it, it would probably make her her work life easier because right. she's going to have some uh, some you know experts to help her deal with you know maybe issues that a child would have. But that's not something that's directly related to right. Her. She's not going to get a, a bonus in her paycheck right. for that. Of course, he doesn't mention anything like that. Increased funding for you know like books or for um, technology. Or uh, you know, hiring more teachers, not just not just having a higher salary as a teacher, but bringing on more teachers to decrease class sizes. That's not something that is putting money in their pocket. That's it is making their work life easier, which will make the position more competitive. But that is much in much larger proportion just helping the students. And he doesn't mention that in there when he's saying, "Oh, you know, don't insult my intelligence by pretending that you care about children." Like, of course these people, like the idea that teachers go into teaching because they just want to make money and not work. It's so detached from reality. I went to, I was considering becoming a public school teacher. And I, maybe I still will. I don't know. Maybe um, it, it's something that I would like to do at, at some point. Uh, but the money is the thing that keeps me from it. And I'm somebody that is, is interested in it for not, for not the money. But if I could make a competitive salary, I would I would be much more likely to go into teaching, but I was going through like a mid-college crisis kind of thing, and I was thinking about dropping my major, and I went back to my old high school, and I talked to my favorite high school teacher, the teacher that had the largest, one of the largest impacts on me that I really had a lot of respect for. I could tell that he really cared about the curriculum. He really cared about his students. He really cared about... Um, fostering an appetite for learning and, and I mean mm -hmm. just all of the good things that you could you could say about a teacher this was that guy and I went to him and I was like I'm thinking about changing my degree to math and secondary education and he said he told me not to do it because I would hate it he said I would hate it not because and he hates it not because of the children not because of the job the actually the teaching part of it he loves that and that's the reason that he went into it, and that's the reason that he stays doing it. But he says all of the oversight that you've got to have from management, all of this nonsense that you have to put up 
from the school board, from the superintendent, all these politics, all of this, um, this other extra stuff on top of not being paid well. The not being paid well was like the fifth or sixth thing he mentioned to me as to why I should not be a teacher. Um, and so, you know, that was like, that was really sad. That was a, a really big bummer for me uh, to hear that, you know, this person that I have, uh, that I had and I have a lot of respect for and that is a really good teacher, he does not recommend people go into teaching. Yeah, that, that actually tracks with the conversations I've had with good, experienced teachers. Um, you know, I'm trying to think back if any of them were supportive in, uh, of folks pursuing education. And I, I honestly, I can't think of any. I mean, every one mm -hmm. I can think of, people, you know, like the one you're describing, who really are like top-notch teachers, the type that you aspire to be, right. the type you want your kids, uh, you know, to be exposed to. And, you know, without fail, they all uh, discouraged their own kids and grandkids from entering the profession. Um, you know, whenever they had student teachers or, you know, mm -hmm. college kids coming in for field experiences, they were very blunt with them about, like, you need to know exactly what you're getting into. Right. Uh, it's not just the fun parts. And, you know, because there is something fulfilling about teaching that uh, is hard to replicate in other jobs. When a kid gets something, when that light bulb goes off in their head, mm -hmm. and you help to make that happen, um, when kids come to you a year later, two years later, five, ten years later and say, hey, you made an impact on my life. Here's, you know, here's all the cool things I've been doing as an adult. And it's thanks to you in part. You know, there's something there that can't be replicated. But there is a lot that comes <laughs> besides that right. uh, in terms of the workload, in terms of the treatment you receive um, and, you know, being targeted by right wing cranks such as this guy we're discussing today. Um there is an ideological uh, conflict with right-wing media really zeroing in on teachers and public schools, and they've been doing it, and it kind of comes in waves. Um, it was really heavy, hard and heavy around the time I entered the profession, and it has come back with a vengeance now. And, you know, teachers, you know, like the counselor I mentioned with Angela McClure segment, I mean, a counselor just mm -hmm. doing her damn job, and next thing you know, her her name is being plastered all over weird right-wing circles on Facebook. That's what folks are having to deal with. Right. Yeah, it, it's, it's just, it's insane. Um, but he does, in his defense, he does latch on to one demand that he might agree with, though. So let's listen to this. And then also... You want to, this is a common complaint we hear from the public school teachers, that the, uh, the class sizes are too big. Well, you know what? I agree with you. I totally agree. Class sizes are way too big. This is one of my fundamental complaints um, about the, the public school system, is that it's a, a factory assembly line approach to education. And you take hundreds of kids and just throw them on the assembly line and uh, you turn the lever and they just go down, you know, um, they go from, from one place to the next. And even if they're not ready to move on to the next phase in the assembly process, they're going to move on anyway. And because the most important thing is to spit them out the other end on schedule. 
Yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't like that either. And when you've got like 30 kids in a classroom, or even 20 kids, there's just no way that those kids are going to get the individualized, personalized attention that they need. Okay, he made some sense there. I'll give him yeah. credit. And, it, you know, so it, what, what was interesting to me about that is that he even kind of goes into why it's important to have smaller class sizes, you know, and, he, and he's like, you know, really kind of saying a lot of the same things that public school teachers right. are going to say about the issues that having 30, 40, 50 people in one class creates. Yeah, and, and I also, I got to say, the critique of the industrial model <clears throat> of, of <clears throat> schooling and the way it is designed to just sort of push th kids through um that's something that you know i'm very sensitive to and that i uh you know would also you know share that critique and uh, unfortunately it's people like matt walsh that helped get us into that mm -hmm. sort of industrial model of education and where students are treated as numbers and not human beings and where the humanistic and democratic impulses to public education, it's always been there, but it's always been in conflict with these other uh, impulses of the industrial model of college career readiness, of right. workforce readiness. Um, you know, there's always been that, that kind of dialectical struggle there within education. And, you know, people like him are the one, very ones who are crushing the democratic humanistic right. impulses in favor of the more industrial model. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, Emma Vigeland on the Majority Report just had a really fascinating interview about student debt um, on Thursday, I believe it was. And they talked about how in the 60s, there was a poll that said uh, of like incoming freshmen that said, you know, the reason that and it, it was something like 60, 70 percent of incoming freshmen said that the reason that they were going to college is to become a more well-rounded citizen and like, you know, these kind of lofty humanistic ideal type stuff. And then by the 80s, it was exactly the opposite. Like 70, 80 percent of the people said that they were going to college to get ready for a job. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and that's also around the time where you saw more and more emphasis at the national level of mm -hmm. job this is training. About, right. And this is about competition. It's about right, national right, security. Right. We can't fall behind the Russians. We can't yeah. fall behind the Chinese. And, and that's still something that that you hear trafficked in education conversations today. Of You know, oh, we're falling behind. Mm hmm. Which, yes, there's truth to that. Our academic achievement um, is not up to par compared to other wealthy countries in the, on planet Earth. Uh, but that's not really what they're getting at there. It's, it's more of a... Um, we, we might lose a competitive edge right. to our geopolitical rivals, which um, you know seems pretty far removed from Johnny, who's trying to learn how to read. Right. So, you know, he, he understands class size in it is an issue, but uh, he wasn't right for very long because this is his solution to class sizes. Oh, God. Um, so, yeah, all that, I'm, I'm with you. Except that the public school system steadfastly resists any effort to actually address the class size problem. 
because how do you end up with smaller class sizes? Let's do a little bit of math if you're a public school teacher. You've got, you've got uh, class. Okay, I'm stopping him there uh, <laughs> because to some degree, he's right that school systems have resisted efforts to significantly lower class sizes. And the reason why is because that costs money. And people like him refuse to give money to public schools. They're against taxes. They're against funding public institutions, especially public schools. And to hire more teachers, which is what it would take to lower class sizes, requires more funding. Mm. Uh, but I got a feeling hiring more teachers is not where he's going with this. So I'll let him continue. Sizes that are too big. What does that tell you? It tells you there's too many kids in the school. <laughs> so how do, we, how do we solve that problem? By having fewer kids in the school. Oh, there you go. Right. So, you know, educators, <laughs> we've been spinning our wheels all these years saying that class sizes are too big. It neg negatively impacts the students. We should have some hard class size caps and we should hire more staff, right, to distribute the student case loads more equitably. Well, we've just been spinning our wheels and here, here, here all along he had the solution. No need to increase teachers, just decrease the student. <laughs> That's how you can lower the class size, right. just kick half of them out. Right. Right. <laughs> you don't like having 30 kids in the class? Well, hell, just, just kick 15 of them yeah. out and then you'll have a reasonable class size. Yeah. Now what happens to the other kids? Well, he goes on to say that we should incentivize homeschooling and uh, private schools. Of course, mm. right? So yeah, this take those 15 out of 30 and remove them from the public school. This also remove all the appropriations of funding that is attached to their attendance. Mm. So the same teacher is going to have to deal with those same 15 kids who are left. Oh, but wait, because now we've let, lost all this funding, actually, we're going to have to cut a few more teacher units. Mm. So your class size is still going to be 30. It's going to be 15 new kids because they cut the teacher next door. Yeah. Yeah, the idea that increasing private school attendance and homeschool attendance is going to decrease public school class sizes is such an asinine thing to pretend right. to think because this guy he's doing like this. i think he knows better yeah he yeah knows that's not realistic there is zero chance that this guy if he has either either he's an idiot and he has no understanding of what would actually happen or he's he's lying to you and both of those are are not good for you they are they're not indicative of a reason to take what this guy has to say seriously. Right. Either he's lying to you and he knows that what would happen is if if you increased private school and homeschool attendance that you would actually not lower class sizes, you would just fire a bunch of public school teachers. Obviously that's what would happen. There's zero zero precedent for that not to happen. So either he's lying and he knows that, or he's stupid, or he's an idiot. Either one of those scenarios, you should not be listening to this guy for what we should do as a society. Right, right. And, you know, the other thing to consider is when they talk about 
increasing private school and homeschool and uh, charter school enrollments. Well, who do you think goes to these programs and who do you think is stuck behind in the public schools? Right. Because I can tell you, the kid who stays in trouble, the kid who is like the teacher's nightmare, uh, the kid who like beats the hell out of the other cla- uh, classmates every day, the kid who climbs up you know, into the ceilings, the kid that tries to run across the road, that kid's still going to go to public school. Let me right. tell you, the private schools aren't taking that kid. Right. They don't have to. And when they talk about school choice, I mean, I think the thing to remember is what they really mean by that is the schools can choose who they serve. Right. And public schools don't have that opportunity. You know, there's a there are some issues in terms of school to prison pipeline. There are issues in terms of inequity uh, in our schools. But by and large, a public school is the closest thing we have to, you know, fulfilling that promise of, mm. you know, give me your tired, give me your your hungry, your poor, your homeless. The folks who show up at the public school door, we have to let them in regardless right. of what language they speak or how much money their parents make or if they even have parents, they get to sit in class. They get to be enrolled as a public school student. Private schools don't have to do that. Yep. And, and what they want is to increase the amount of kids in private schools and subsidize it with our tax dollars. Mm. They want to use public funding and put more public money into private hands. And that's always what all this shit's about, ultimately, in in all its various strands. Some of them, you know, you have the Matt Walsh types who, you know, would want vouchers. They want tax dollars going to you as a family that you can then turn around and write that check to, you know, the Christian school. Right. Uh, But then you also have the the more corporate-minded folks who realize they can make a buck off the system as it is. Right. And and instead of letting teachers, the experts have control over curriculum and assessment. No, we're going to sell them millions of dollars of products. We're all going to get them on a script, teaching from a script, using our copyrighted materials that the school board has to pay for every year. Um, Or this 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 uh, get rid of support staff from the district and rehire them under a temp agency so we can get a little cut. Yeah, it's all putting private, uh, you know, filling private pockets with public dollars. And it's never about helping the kids. Um, they they have no solutions to actually improve academic achievement. You know, at best, they have they're speaking to people on an individual and a family level. And, you know, by all means, do what do what's right for your family. If you think that sending your kid to a private school or or homeschooling them is the best thing for you and your family and that child, you have that right. Mm. But you shouldn't have the right to expect all the rest of us to pay you to do that right? and to take money out of our public schools and give it to you to subsidize your private choice. I think that's just that's just too far. Um, And ultimately... There's a lot that's connected to segregation in this 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 movement for vouchers and, and charters. Segregation, not just by race, but by class, by ability, right? Because how many special ed students do you think they're eager to let into these private Christian academies? Right. 
Yeah, of course, not very many. Of course, not very How many. many. And, and we've seen we've seen the reports about the you know the studies detailing how it is. You know the thing about the thing that they always say in defense of private schools is like, oh, they get better results. They get better. Look at how much better their test scores are, or whatever. And and you're we, never measuring apples to apples, right? You can look at the studies and see that. Oh, hey, wow, that's weird. Uh, they dis, uh, this public this private school turned away. All these people with autism or ADHD. Oh, this private school turned away all these poor people. Oh, this private school has a uh, really, really lily white, uh, really rich uh, 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 classes, students. Right. So, you know, like, wh why is it because they get to why is it that they have better test scores because they pick their students? Public schools don't pick and their that's, students. And that's even when and if, you know, they do. Right. Uh, because... A lot of times they don't. Right. Yeah. That, and a lot of times the quality of the private schools is not nearly what they make it out to be. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that they get to pick the kids that are there. And right. that makes all the difference in the data points. Um, but I think folks would be mistaken if they think that these private schools are offering like, you know, some kind of vastly superior education with vastly superior teachers I, I i'm not disputing that that happens right because obviously the elite of the elite send their kids to very elite private schools that are doing you know pretty amazing things uh because they have the ability and resources to do that right. but there's also a whole lot of private schools out there that are no better on a practical level than the local public school, but it does allow, you know, the family to uh, congregate with families that they want to congregate with. Right. We got a text last week uh, from somebody asking about, um, you know, some helpful hints for starting a union when your working conditions are horrendous and your required working hours are abhorrent, like 80 hours a week. Woo! Yeah. And so, Adam, I wanted to, because I, because it's really difficult for me. So I don't, I, I don't have personal experience with this. I, uh, I've got a nice, you know, public sector job. I very, very rarely have to work overtime. Um, I, you know, and and I already had a union when I came in. My my workplace was already organized. So you know, um. I don't have personal experience with this. And Adam, I think, you know, you would have come closer to being like that, uh, being in a situation like this person. But even, even still, I don't think you were working that much uh, mm -mm. as a teacher or an AEA staffer. So, you know, what are what what would what would you say to somebody, um, you know, that, that comes up to you and asks, uh, you know, like, hey, I work 80 hours a week, like uh, my job like sucks ass and <laughs> and I'd, I'd like to organize a union. How do I do that working 80 hours a week? What would be some of the first things that you said to that? Oh God. Well, I mean, at 80 hours a week, obviously you don't have much time outside of work. And so that is a, a major obstacle because it's going to be that much tougher for you to go out for coffee or go out for a beer with your coworkers to have early conversations and, and start to develop an organizing committee. So, you know, uh, thinking about this, uh, I would say the, the basic principles still apply of connecting with your coworkers and finding the like-minded people. Obviously, you already have at least one major issue 
mm-hmm. which is that you're, you've got abhorrent uh, uh, working hours, 80 hours a week. That's far beyond reasonable, you know. I don't care how sweet the OT might be <laughs> on payday. No one should have to work 80 hours a week. Mm-hmm. So you've already got a, a major organizing issue. And and if they're working you 80 hours a week, there's probably a lot more issues involved here. Right. So the principles, I would say, are still the same of connecting with coworkers. It's just you've got a lot less time outside of work to do that. So um, while ordinarily I think, you know, technology is a pretty poor replacement, for face-to-face conversations in, in a situation like this, this, this is where it's important that you do have text groups mm-hmm. and um, you know connect with people on social media and start some group chats um, and stay connected that way. And then, you know, to, to, it's hard to say what kind of work environment this is, but any kind of organizing that you can do while you're on the clock is going to be important. Um, because if you're there 80 hours a week, that's where you're at most of the time. Right. right. So to the extent that you can find opportunities to have conversations with people on the clock, um, you know, if you're working alongside of them or if you can run into them at break time or lunchtime, um, that's, you know, that's where I would say uh, is get some get some group text chats going Um have conversations on the clock to the extent that you can. I mean, don't get, don't put a bullseye on your back. Right. Right. Don't, don't go around loudly talking union uh, in front of your boss while you're on the clock. Uh, but it, take advantage of the opportunities that you might have. Um, use technology to sort of supplement what you may not be able to do um, outside of work. But the otherwise, the, the basic principles are the same. It's just that, you know, I think it's a recognition from everyone involved that it's going to be that much more difficult because of the time restraints and because, frankly, you're exhausted. Right. And I, I ran into this a lot. I, I've, I've seen this a lot in, in my organizing over the years where people are with you. They agree with you. They support you. But they can't do anything to get involved because they're just too overstretched. They are too tired, too exhausted. They don't have the time. They don't have the energy. And that is one of the biggest obstacles I think we face, period, in this country of labor organizing. Because the conditions are as bad as they are uh, in so many industries and so many workplaces, and you have so many people who... Um, you know, our supporters, but moving them into an activist or, or even into an organizer role is just going to be very difficult because they're tired. They, right. they don't have the time. So to the extent that you can have conversations on the clock, definitely take advantage of that. Um, use technology to sort of supplement what you can't do face to face. The principles remain the same of building your committee getting a cohort of people that you trust that are respected in the workplace um, that can map out the workplace and, and identify who's who, who stands where. Um, all those still apply. It's just, you know, I, and I would, I would say this is also an area where outside help can be very mm-hmm. uh, important because you are so stretched for time and energy you know, can you have a union 
reps? Uh, can can a union send people from other locals or can they send their staff organizers to help? Right. Can you get community support? Can your local DSA chapter, your local labor council, uh, can you get folks from the community who could really supplement the work you need to do? Obviously, the workers are the ones who have to organize and you know build their own union. You can't do it from the outside. But folks from the outside might be able to do a lot of help uh, right. and help with some of the grunt work. If you need somebody working on spreadsheets for a few hours every week, mm-hmm. maybe that's someone you can find who's not um, technically your coworker, but who you know you could trust to be part of that process. And that's just a few thoughts I have off the top of my head, but it's 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 a very tough conundrum, and that's something. Uh, yeah, I would, I would like to, to hear from folks smarter than me, you know, if they have any suggestions on that as well. Yeah, and I think that that last thing that you mentioned is something that's really important to keep in mind as, uh, it, it, you know, if you find yourself in that situation where you're working 70, 80 hours a week, um, you know, don't do try to tag you know, your local DSA labor committee or your local labor council, the union that you're organizing with um, for as much as you can. You know, obviously, like Adam said, the workers are going to be the ones that need to lead the thing, need to be the ones making the decisions and stuff. But all that grunt work, anything that doesn't have to be done by somebody internal, uh, an actual worker, especially in situations like that, those are um, in situations where the workers are really, really overstretched, working so much overtime. Uh, that's really where that community support, uh, support from your union staff, can um, can come in in handy. Uh, so, so yeah, and I know we we saw with the Chipotle union, mm-hmm. um, Louise uh, Leon wrote a great article for Labor Notes about them and and how the local DSA chapter really helped them get this union going um you know but still start with start with your coworkers. find find the coworker, even if it's just start with one and you two start to get connected and start to have conversations and then bring other people into the fold however those conversations may need to take place and whenever they may need to take place uh what you can't do is just throw up your hands and say hey it's just it's right. we're too screwed here. We're never gonna have time. It's just hopeless. I, I think if you do that, it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Right. Um, yes, it's gonna be tough, uh, but it's always gonna be worth trying to make things better. If it's not worth trying to make things better, then that's where I would say go find another job if it's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I you know. Yeah, I mean, and especially in a time period like now, you know, with the, um, you know, with the labor market being so tight, there are lots of other jobs available and there are lots of other, there are lots of union jobs available at UPS. I mean, UPS, if if you are looking for a job and you're not sure what you want to do, you don't have really, really any career path that you're dead set on, you should work at UPS. That would be a really good place to make some good money, but also to... Uh, be a part of one of the more consequential labor actions in the 21st century. <laughs> you right. know, I mean, you know, or um, find a local Starbucks or something. I mean, well, I, Amazon. So, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know the uh, the you know context of this this commenter's uh, situation, but you know, 
I would say if if you think it is so hopeless that you literally just see no chance of being able to organize on the job, then that's when I would consider going mm-hmm. elsewhere. Um, and if you don't have a choice to go elsewhere, like literally any other job you take is going to be a step down, you, you're depending on this, then I would say you don't have much of a choice but to organize. Right. Right, right. Yep, that's exactly right. And and the the last thing that I had here is, you know, is about retaliation. And that, that this is something that I wanted to tackle and, and, you know, I wanted to bounce, you know, some of my thoughts um, off of you, Adam, for this one. Because this is something that, that folks are going to hear a lot that... You know, and maybe folks like this this person that sent us that text message last week, that it's just not worth it because of potentially putting a target on your back, you know. And and, and we've seen some, I mean, we've seen some serious, we have actually seen some serious retaliation against yeah. folks that are working to unionize and fight for a say in how they're treated. Uh, folks have been fired. Stores have been closed. Criminal charges were filed against uh, against Starbucks workers in South Carolina for quote unquote kidnapping their boss, even though they obviously didn't do that and they were never arrested and and you know that those charges were were never operable. But that's a pretty scary thing to go through, and so because of the fear of retaliation, because of the reality of re- retaliation for so many people. Some people reckon that this means you ought to just put your head down. Don't try to unionize. The boss has all the power. That's not going to change. You're just going to make your life harder. And some of the folks down in Scottsboro who were organizing uh, with Starbucks Workers United at at the Starbucks down in Scottsboro, they showed me some messages from some of their family saying more or less, you know, I told you so, and now look at what. Look, you're probably going to get fired because you've got a target on your back. Uh, you know, you ended up not getting the union. Uh, maybe they will once everything is decided, but they don't have it yet. They're not unionized yet, um, so you're probably going to get fired. You just made your life so hard. Why even put in the effort to, uh, you know, you had a you had a good thing here. Why would you want to mess it up? Um and you know there's a lot of people that that have that attitude that they see the way the world is as natural and immovable and this is this is just the way things are and therefore that's the way things are always going to be so if you try to fight against that you're just going to make your life worse you're just going to make your life harder and you know so the question ultimately is, does the retaliation that you might face, that workers have faced in the fu- in the past, that workers will face in the future, does that mean that you shouldn't fight, that you shouldn't try to unionize, that you shouldn't organize? And, and the answer to that, it has to be no. It has to be no. Because even, even the things that I said, as bad as they are, as bad as it is to be fired, to have a target on your back by the boss to um, to even get criminal charges filed against you, even if they're not operable, to get arrested. As bad as those things are, workers had it worse before. Workers ac- across, you know, across history in the United States and, and across the, the globe have been assassinated for organizing unions. I mean, they've literally been killed, right? And they still did it. 
And because of folks like that, because of folks like that, that died for the freedom that we have in and from the workplace, we have that freedom in and from the workplace. To the extent that we have anything good, you know, people fought for it when the conditions were much worse. Um, and so because of their sacrifices, because of them being willing to do that, things actually did get better, right? We ha- we, we went from, from a 16-hour workday to a 12-hour workday. We went from a 12-hour workday to a 8-hour workday. We went from six- and seven-day work weeks to five-day work weeks. And bosses are trying to claw that back now, like with that commenter that we had that is now working 80-hour work weeks again. People are trying to claw back those gains that were actually won by people. And so the only reason that we are going to be able even just to hold on to the things that we've got, just to not let it go, just to maintain, the only way that we're going to be able to do that is to organize, is unionizing, is fighting back against the boss as they are trying to take all the, all of these things from us that that are that that our forefathers and foremothers and uh, everybody else that they fought for, and so I think that that as a matter of practicality, the fact of retaliation, the fear of retaliation is all is is all the more reason to organize, is all the more reason to unionize because you're going to have to face all of these bad things whether or not you have your coworkers and your brothers and sisters there to fight with you across the country and across your job and across your region. You're going to have all of these things whether or not you are unionized. And so, as, as, as a matter of practicality, the best way to maintain and get, and, and get better, get more from your job is to unionize. But also, as a show of respect to people who came before us and sacrificed so much more than we would have to. Just as a matter of respect to them, it's it's almost like it's almost like a slap in the face to them to not do that, right? To to the sacrifices that they made, uh, it's like why would we give up our birthright because we're scared of the boss when these people before us didn't? And so you know that's that's what I would say to folks that are thinking about unionizing that are maybe on the fence that are worried about retaliation is is that as a matter of practicality unionizing is going to be the best way to make your job better to maintain the things that you like about your job and to get more things that you like about the job as a matter of practicality that's going to be your best bet um and also as a way to honor the people that, that get you know that fought for the things that we have today uh that is something that 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 you can and should do um, because we don't have to sacrifice the same things that, that they did before. I mean, right. As, as we sit now in the United States in 2022, it is incredibly unlikely that you will be assassinated by the boss, right? Incredibly unlikely. Um, not to say that it, it can't or won't happen, you know, as we're like, <laughs> you know, descending, um, into corporate rule even more and more you know that's not to say that those things won't come back but right now that's not something that we're hearing a lot about that's not something that people are really having to face a lot um and so while the retaliation is only what it is now you know no better time to unionize yeah i i i think you're right there and um 
there is no better time than now. I appreciate that you brought up the historical context because you're right. People have organized under much, much more difficult conditions. People have sacrificed life and limb, literally, uh, to organize, to build their unions, to build power for themselves and working class people uh, facing off against Pinkerton thugs, against right wing death squads. Uh, police and armies um, facing off against any number of threats. But people still did it because good things are rarely easy things. And I think life comes with struggle and sacrifice, and we all just have to make our own decisions on, you know, what sacrifices and where um, are worth it for us. It's understandable why folks would say this just put our head down and do what we're told but that comes at a cost as well Mm -hmm. that's not you know it it may seem on the surface to be the easier choice and in in a lot of ways it is but it comes with its own set of costs right Uh, whether that's the continuation of of poor working conditions continue to get underpaid continue to be disrespected the toll on your your spirit, frankly, that comes from that, from just putting your head down and keeping your mouth shut and doing what you're told, even under conditions that you know aren't right, when you know you deserve better. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some folks don't believe they deserve better, and some folks don't believe they have any agency. They're just rolling with the tide. Uh, and, you know, the power of the bosses and the power of the politicians and the media and the ruling elites, it all just seems too immovable. And, um, you know, they're just here along for the ride. That's a difficult thing to, to address. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, keeps us all up at night is, is how do you convince people to, be, to believe that they themselves deserve better? And that so do their neighbors, so do their sisters and brothers. Um, but retaliation is always going to be a risk. But life is about taking risk. And to make things better, you typically have to take those risks. Um, and again, you have to weigh the cost of doing nothing versus doing something. We're, we're very fortunate that so many folks throughout history in this country and elsewhere, have chosen to do something over nothing, even at their own cost. Um, every, every aspect of positive change we've experienced in this country came from ordinary people banding together, organizing, building a movement from the bottom up that could challenge power and, and change our circumstances. And whether that's civil rights or labor rights or women's rights, um, all of those movements have and will continue to do the necessary work we, we have to have done to have a better future for ourselves and for our descendants. So I understand that retaliation is a scary thing, and I understand that you know when you have a bills to pay and, and a family to feed, that sometimes you're less prone to take those risks. But think long and hard about the risk you're taking by not 
doing anything. Take long, take a long look at the risk you take by trying to keep your head down. Yeah. Uh, because you can keep your head down. That won't stop a bullseye from showing up on your back. Um, you can you can go through life thinking, ah, it'll never happen to me. You can do that, uh, but unfortunately, you may find yourself surprised. And I am speaking to someone who has been fired out of retaliation, and um, it was not pleasant. You know, I lost my my income and my benefits. Um, it was quite damaging to my personal reputation. You know, uh, they didn't charge me with any criminal charges, but uh, they certainly you know, made some implications that mm. maybe I had, had done something to that level, uh, which, you know, they, they put that out there in the ether. Um, so I know what it's like to, to speak up and to be fired in, in response. And no, it's not pleasant. Um, and, you know, frankly, I haven't recovered from it um, financially, and I may never. But at the end of the day, I'm going to live my life true to who I am and true to my values. And I think that's something that we all ultimately have to do. Um, <clears throat> if you really believe in something, you got to really be about it. Mm -hmm. and, and that comes with some degree of risk. But life is full of risk. And if I'm going to take risk, I would rather the risk be on the side of fighting for better for me and my family and, and my fellow workers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Marisa in the chat said, I once heard a terrific story from a union historian about some workers organizing, I believe, with the United Auto Workers who were told by the boss that whoever was the first to sign would lose their job. So they decided to sign up for the union by putting their signatures in a circle. Um, there's a lot of history for us to work and reflect on and use when it's risky. Um, that's absolutely true. And there are right. lots of things that you can do to decrease the, you know, the amount of risk that you're going to take. But, but ultimately, yeah. you know, there is, like Adam said, there's going to be a risk um, either way. So. And there's strength in numbers, absolutely. And it is always easier to take those risks uh, among comrades when you have your sisters and brothers taking the same risk with you. Um, that's the whole point. That's why unions right. are, are a big deal and why they're important because of that strength that comes through collective action. Um, you know, that's that's what it's all about. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I believe it's worth it. I yep. believe it's worth it to fight for a better world. Um, and is even if that's just trying to get, you know, a dollar an hour raise at your little job and your little section of the world, um, it's worth it to come together and try to make things change for the better. Yep. And with that, that's going to be it for us this week, folks. We appreciate your time. Appreciate you listening. Uh, we will be back next week. Until then, all power to the workers.